Let us pray. Good and gracious God, we give you thanks for the gift of today. Uh, we give you thanks that you have kept us relatively safe from the recent storm. Uh, we continue to lift up to you now in prayer uh, all those who are still suffering from the recent hurricanes, particularly those people in Puerto Rico and in Florida. Um, we thank you for your grace and your mercy to us in so many ways. At this time, we lift up all of our trials and tribulations to you, all of the burdens of our hearts, and pray for healing, peace, comfort, and direction. We thank you for this opportunity to worship you in spirit and in truth, to receive a word from you, as well as your supper, reminding us of your great love for us. Speak now, Lord, for your servants listen. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. <clears throat> My sermon text for today is the book of the Old Testament prophet Habakkuk, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, and then skipping to chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. would like to take as my sermon title for this morning, five words from chapter 2, verse 3. If you don't mind, Kathy, putting that on the board, chapter 2, verse 3, five words from that which say there is still a vision. Can you say that for me, please? There is still a vision. Amen. Be honest. How many of you didn't know that Habakkuk was a book of the Bible? <laughs> there is no shame. As you can see, if you did not, you are not alone. The so-called crispy section of your Bibles jokingly refers to the last books of the Old Testament. They are all extremely brief, and in order are Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. These 12 books bearing the names of prophets, sometimes actually referred to in the singular forms simply as the Book of the Twelve are part of two designations in Scripture, the latter prophets and the minor prophets. Uh, together with Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, they constitute the latter prophets, simply meaning those who come later in time, as opposed to the former prophets found in Joshua, Judges, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. These twelve alone, moreover, uh, constitute what's known as the minor prophets. Not a comment on their importance or significance, but rather to distinguish them from the major prophets of Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, whose works are simply a lot longer. These 12 are often jokingly referred to as the crispy section of your Bible because they are so rarely read or studied or consulted in any form so that their pages often remain pristine and untouched condition, even though they can be hard to understand in places and involve many prophecies of doom and judgment during a difficult time. Our benign neglect of them is to our own detriment, as much wisdom and hope is to be found within their pages. This particular book of the ancient prophet Habakkuk, unfortunately, ranks among the crispiest of the crispy. 
Habakkuk was a prophet who lived just prior to the fall of the southern kingdom of Judah and the exile of God's chosen people, the Jews, to Babylon at the hands of King Nebuchadnezzar and his mighty Babylonian empire. The time was approximately the 6th century B.C., so roughly 500 years prior to Jesus Christ. And the context was one of increasing national chaos, anarchy, and despair. Lawlessness and violence were on the rise as injustice ripened and social order decayed. The overall theme of the book is what scholars call theodicy. It's a 50-cent word, namely the task of defending a good and just God in the face of so much evil and suffering in the world. Job, for example, is another book of theodicy. One commentator remarks that Habakkuk is, and I'm quoting now, confronting honestly the profoundly disturbing problem of why a just God is silent to quote from chapter 1, verse 13 herein, when the wicked swallow those more righteous than they. The specific verses we have before us this morning are taken from a larger section of dialogue between the prophet Habakkuk and God. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, constitute the prophet's initial cry to God, while chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, constitute Habakkuk's vigilant, if stubborn, stance and God's reply to him. Chapter 1, verse 1, begins simply the oracle that the prophet Habakkuk saw. The term oracle literally means burden. And it is a technical term describing the prophetic word. Anyone who speaks a prophetic word knows that it is a burden. Because rather than being an endearing word, it is oftentimes a challenging and convicting word. A word of admonition and exhortation and repentance. In this case, in this case Habakkuk actually sees the burden or the oracle of the prophetic word. All he has to do is simply open up his eyes to behold the burden that is the world in front of him. Has anybody in here ever just opened your eyes and beheld a burdensome society? Does anyone consider watching the news a burden? Does anyone consider reports of terrorism Suicide bombings, civil war, chemical weapons, drone strikes from Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, Yemen, and now Ukraine to be burdensome. How about more local violence in Raleigh and Wake County? How about the posturing of various government officials and pundits in our hyperpartisan election season? Does anyone look at the price of gas? Or medical care. And say, oh, that's uplifting. <laughs> or that's burdensome. Does anyone consider the rampant cheating and doping of athletes and sports in our nation to be deflating, wearisome, and, well, burdensome? Not to mention the devastations wrought by natural disasters like our recent hurricanes. And how about runaway inflation? Habakkuk 
opens his 6th century B.C. eyes to behold a burdensome reality, my friends, that is disturbingly similar to the world at large some 26 centuries later and so cries a burdensome word that resonates down throughout the ages. O Lord, verse 1 begins, how long shall I cry for help and you, you will not listen or cry to you violence and yet you will not save. Why do you make me see wrongdoing and look upon trouble? Destruction and violence are ever before me. Strife and contention arise. And many of us don't necessarily have to turn on the evening news to encounter such sentiments, unfortunately. These feelings are as close as our own families and homes and spouses and children and parents and jobs, and schools. And in our pain, in our isolation, we too cry out, verse number four, so the law becomes slack and justice never prevails. The wicked surround the righteous, therefore judgment comes forth perverted. And if you're self-aware enough, you'll realize that the anger arising from your pain can be so consuming that you can no longer tell who is whom in this stark bifurcation or division or even which sides you fall on anymore, justice or wickedness. And so the righteous indignation of a prophet like Habakkuk is one thing, but we often dance upon that fine line. This is James 1 verse 19. Let everyone be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger, for your anger does not produce the righteousness of God. In this work of theodicy, Habakkuk is as relentless, stubborn, and admirable as Job, the psalmist, and Jesus on the cross, all lamenting and demanding to know in so many words, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken us? Verse Chapter 2, verse 1 continues, I will stand at my watch post, Habakkuk declares. I will station myself on the rampart. I will keep watch to see what he will say to me and what he will answer me concerning my complaint. Anybody doing that right now in your life? Standing guard, keeping watch, in an elevated position, looking out at the horizon, looking and waiting, not for the enemy, but for God. Speaking metaphorically like Jacob as he wrestled with the divine in his own life. I will not let you go, O Lord, until you bless me. Or like the desperate psalmist, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits more than watchman for the morning. More than watchman for the morning. Anybody in here saying, I'm not going anywhere until I get my answer? Like Habakkuk, you're thinking and saying, until I see justice, I am not standing down. Until righteousness and peace prevail, I'm still standing. Until the dawn from on high breaks upon us, 
until the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings, until I lift up mine eyes unto the hills from whence cometh my help, and until I actually get the reply, my help cometh from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, I'm not going anywhere. Remember, Jesus once encouraged persistent, unceasing prayer by saying, Will not God vindicate God's elect who cry to him by day and by night? Then the Lord answered you, uh, I mean Habakkuk, in verse 2 and said, Write the vision, make it plain upon tablets so that a runner may read it. Without a vision, the book of Proverbs famously warns us, the people perish. So this is God giving the vision to Habakkuk and telling him to write it down. So that others may not only know it, but also hold fast to it. He is instructed to make it plain, meaning clear and obvious. He is also instructed to do so on tablets evoking the two earlier tablets on which God gave God's law, the Ten Commandments, to Mount, on Mount Sinai to Moses, different tablets with different visions, but the same God with the same will and desire. Habakkuk is to make it so plain that a runner may read it. This is typically understood to mean in bold, big strokes so that one is easily able to read it and understand it even when running, even when in motion, even when otherwise engaged. For there is still a vision for the appointed time, verse 3 continues. If you've given up hope, my friends, there is still a vision. If you've long ago given in to resignation and despair, had a dream deferred or a significant relationship broken or severed, there is still a vision. And it is for the appointed time. Maybe not right now. Maybe not in your time. But in God's. It speaks of the end, verse 3 continues. And it does not lie. It will happen in the end. It will be forever, for all eternity. It does not lie because it is of God. It is true because God is true. If it seems to tarry, verse 3 continues, wait for it. It will surely come it will not delay. It is on the way. Isaiah once prophesied, my deliverance draws near speedily because my salvation has already gone forth. Paul once wrote, salvation is nearer to us now than it was when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. Waiting on the Lord oftentimes seems inconvenient. At certain times, it is downright unbearable. But Isaiah once counseled, if you can just hang in there, those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up on wings like eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. So, there is a vision, my friend. It is plain, 
be held even by us unfocused, frenzied runners of our various rat races. It has an appointed time. It is true. And it is final. And we are to wait for it. But those are all characteristics of the vision. What is the vision itself? Verse number four. But the righteous shall live by faith. The older translation reads, I cannot overstate the profound importance of this obscure, crispy verse for salvation history, my friends. Paul quotes it at least twice in his letters, in Romans and Galatians respectively. I am not afraid of the gospel, he says to the Romans. It is the power of God to everyone who has faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And again to the Galatians, now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. Now faith is understood as belief, trust, reliance upon God. It's intangible nature is attested when the book of Hebrews declares it to be the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And when 2 Corinthians testifies that we walk by faith, not by sight, looking not to what can be seen, but we look to what cannot be seen, for what can be seen is temporary, fleeting, passing, but what cannot be seen, that, my friends, is eternal. So when the prophet Habakkuk declares that the vision granted by God, that which is simple and plain, true, and on the way, is the righteous shall live by faith, what that means is that you and I are called by God to believe in what we cannot see. To trust in what is mysterious and unknowable except by revelation. To rely on what is beyond our physical sight and five senses. To be righteous means to live by faith. And to live by faith means to live and walk and breathe and trust in a reality all around you which may have little to no evidence. It is to believe in the free salvation of God by grace through faith. It is to believe in life more abundantly in the here and now and life eternal in the hereafter. It is to believe that all of your sins are forgiven, not just some of them. It is to believe that God loves you unconditionally and others the very same way. It is to believe that Jesus Christ lived for you, died for you, was resurrected for you, ascended for you, and is returning again all for you. It is to believe that God is for you, not against you. It is to believe in God's word, the scriptures, and God's sacraments of baptism and communion. It is to believe in the three great ecumenical creeds, the seven great ecumenical councils, and grace alone, faith alone, and scripture alone. It is to believe in Sunday morning, in communal worship, in Bible study, in Sunday school, in tithing, and in the power of prayer. 
It is to believe that faith and hope and love abide all three. But the greatest of those great is love. It is to believe that blessed are the peacemakers. That we will in fact beat our swords into plowshares. Our spears into pruning hooks. Such that the wolf one day will lie down with the lamb. The leopard with the kid. The calf and the lion and the fatling all together. And they will not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain. It is to believe in a new heavens and a new earth and a new Jerusalem where we will see our departed loved ones again one day. Where we will become like Jesus for we shall see him as he is. And where nothing will ever be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Regardless of what the world says. Despite what the world does. However other people think about you or talk about you. You are a child of the King. A son or daughter of the Most High. Created in His image. Redeemed by His blood. And sustained by the indwelling Holy Spirit. You, my friends, are an heir of the Kingdom of God. Allow me to stand on the watchtower with you this morning or in lieu of you if you're too weary or overwhelmed. There is a world and a kingdom which you cannot see. A new day is coming. Even if this section of your Bible is crispy, God's promises are not. They are tried and true. They are well-worn. They are hand-me-downs in the best sense of the word. God will make a way out of no way. He is your God and He is coming to rescue you. Forget the first words of Habakkuk, which we have before us this morning. Look at the last words from chapter 3, verse 17. Obviously outside of our reading for today. Though the fig tree does not blossom and no fruit is found on the vines though the produce of the olive fails and the fields yield no food at all though the flock is cut off from the fold and there is no herd in the stalls yet somebody say yet, yet. now say it louder yet. now say it like you mean it Yet I will trust in the Lord. I will exult in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He will make my feet like the feet of a deer. And make me tread upon the heights. You hang in there. Your change is coming. Keep living by faith. There is still a vision. Amen.